Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 53 is David Brookings. You are currently listening to You're So Right, It Went So Wrong from David Brookings and the Average Lookings 2016. That being his seventh album, his first was released in 2000. We're going to discuss another song from the current album, Time to Go, then look back to Dead Battery from 2005's Chorus vs. The Bridge, and Obsessed from the album called Obsessed 2007. We'll conclude by listening to If I Don't Make It Back from The Maze 2013. For more information, please check out davidbrookings.net. For more information on this podcast, visit nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you enjoy this interview, I hope you'll make even a small contribution through patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. All right, so I will have played as the instrumental introduction, as we agreed, part of You're So Right, It Went So Wrong from the new album. And we want to get pretty quickly to the first song that we're actually going to discuss in depth, Time to Go, from that new album as well, David Brookings and the Average Lookings. Do you want to say a little about that project, about that song in particular? Sure, that song, I like to write about things that are a little bit different than, it's not just always boy girl you know what i mean so with that song the idea was why when i meet somebody do i instantly decide right away whether i like them or not that's not really necessarily fair to them but it's kind of how i do so i remember the line something about i'll know right away if i like you or i want you dead that seemed funny to me and it seemed a little harsh and then i like the chorus of that song too so i just kind of built it off of that
Yeah, so thematically, I like that idea where you take something that's based in an attitude you have, something you feel, but then you either exaggerate it or present it in its kind of one-sidedness in a way that (laughs) this is not necessarily a feeling that you condone in yourself, but let's just put it out there as if it's a statement, as if I really mean it. I'll pull the plug on you so fast, it'll spin your head. I'll know real fast if I like you or I want you dead. That's Partly, I mean, it rhymes, so it works in that way, but it's really harsh. But there's a humor to it, too, I think. A lot of my stuff, and I think a lot of people don't always get it, but it's meant to be kind of funny in a way, mixed with this pop sensibility that everything I've always listened to and been drawn to is so, there's a popness to it. And I don't mean like a Rihanna, Beyonce type of pop. I mean a pop rock, Beatles, Monkeys, that kind of thing. Weezer, I love. I love a lot of modernish stuff too. So that all kind of ties together in that. And Time to Go is very 60s sounding, I think. A lot of stuff I do, I try to almost not be intentionally that retro, but that one has a real kind of retro feel to it. So this intro four measure thing that then repeats seems very carefully constructed. Let me just play a little bit of it. So this is the fact that you've got two guitars, you know, in addition to just going through the four measured you've got the sprinkle at the end of the first half of it with the is that a 12 string or is that just you're just playing high no i'm playing high and then i'm harmonizing that thirded there's a second guitar overdub that's doing a thirded harmony of the first one okay not a 12 string of course a particularly beatlesy sound in terms of like that could be the whole thing of a george harrison solo in terms of playing playing <laughs> Yeah. And then at the end of the fourth thing, then you have the guitar that's in the right speaker doing the blah kind of propel you into the next section. So just the fact that you've got, it would be very easy to just play the whole thing big, you know, through that, that would be fine, but let's sprinkle those things. And then the fact that you've got the, the one, four, five at the end when you do the second time to kind of makes it even brighter to just propel us into the verse. Any comments about sort of how that kind of thing gets put together? Is that something that comes in over time? Was that like in the initial version of the song that was right there or that's something later? When I do stuff, I usually demo it on GarageBand and show it to the guys. A lot of the times it's very similar to what I have on the demo. And on Time to Go, I had that part ahead of time. And then it was just showing the other guitar player the part. But the build up on the toms, I wanted to kind of doom, 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 yeah. kind of build into that. And then I oftentimes will have a little intro. It's usually what the verse is going to be. But I like the guitar stuff to do something different than what I'm going to do vocally most of the time. That intro line is just kind of a little counter melody to what the vocal melody is when the verses start up. When you actually put the verse over that, I'll pull the plug on you so fast. But like, it's not like the plink, plink, plink guitar is answering that. It's not like, I'm gonna get ya. Blah, blah, blah. Like, it's not a call and response thing. Like, it's layered over. So it sounds right. almost more serendipitous that you'd already written it instrumentally and then you put the vocal on top of that. I had that first. Yeah. And any sort of comments on 
how you decide where background vocals go. No real fast if I like you or if I want you dead. You know, so it almost sounds like when you, when the third enters there, when you have the background vocals enter just for that little second half of the second line that it becomes an extra catchy. It could be like a little snippet on an ad in terms of like this could be a standalone one line. That one's not quite call and response, but it's close to it because it's almost like uh, you could hear like some girl group having the three girls doing the backups and singing that part. And in the chorus, it is more call and response with the really no. Really no. So we wanted to get that and, and have that sound big and the guitars be really kind of chunky in the chorus there too. That song has been one of the, a really well received one off the new record and it's the front runner in streams right now. I'm really happy with the way that one turned out. We actually, the bass player produced the record with me. He's not in the band any longer, but he, uh, really was good behind the boards and he and I really got in, not got into it, but he wanted time to go first on the record. And I liked hearts for an opener. So, I mean, in the end, you can do the gavel and say, no, this is first, but. Maybe time to go should have been first. I don't know. Yeah. So I've noticed throughout your work, you obviously you like the Beatlesque harmony thing, but usually that gets interpreted as two part as opposed to like you have in the time to go here to the really not, you know, the answering thing, especially in the studio. It's very easy to at least put three part, <laughs> four or five, maybe do a Beach Boys thing, double every part <laughs> several times. But you seem to have really resisted that. That is just especially, you know, on all the records prior to this, it sounds like it's just you doing all the background vocals. Right. But this one was more of a band effort that you had more your guitarist, other guitarist doing some of them. Is that right? I did on the first album. There were other people singing. Okay. And the second through the sixth records, you're right, it's almost all me harmonizing with myself. But I like on this latest one, Isaac the Blend was really good. And it sounds good to have somebody other than you singing, you know, especially if the blend is is right. But yeah, you're right. I do a lot of two-part stuff. I almost always double track the lead vocal and then do a harmony over that. So it's usually three voices, but two of them are almost always the same. And I notice a lot of times your harmony vocal is higher and your voice is already pretty damn high. <laughs> so has that been hard historically to get those to reproduce live or, or now you're, uh, you know, have somebody sing an octave down the second part or how are you pulling this off? There's new stuff I'm working on where I sing lower. Yeah. A lot of people have commented on that. Man, you, you sing really high. I'm not really trying to. It's just the keys, I guess, that I write in. I don't know. With my voice, people either are really into it or like, man, that's a strange voice. <laughs> it can go either way, but I'm not trying to do this this high. One time someone said, you sound like Billy Corgan. And I was like, oh, that's not that I don't like Smashing Pumpkins, but that's definitely not what I'm going for. It also might be, I don't know, I like a lot of, maybe it's the Oasis influence on me. Maybe there's a nasally, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what it is. I think it's just the sound of your voice. I was just more asking the fact that it sounds so natural that that's your sound. Like yeah. the, the core sound is you sing high and then you harmonize yourself higher. Do you just not try to do that live at all? You just don't just sing it solo. We try to, and the guys, sometimes they can do it and sometimes not. And if they can't, then we make it a lower register harmony. I'd love to get like a Howie Epstein from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. He was such a great high harmony singer. That's the dream. But the guys, they do a pretty good job with it live. We work on it a lot and that's what we do live. Even though you have more people singing live, do you still keep it at the two part, keep it to match the arrangement on the record? Or do you just, all right, we're going to fill this up? For the most part, we do. Some things are a little bit different, but we try to recreate the records as best we can. Let's jump to the guitar solo here. 
So just the fact that you've got, basically for the instrumental, instead of just a single guitar solo, you've got three distinct sections that you've got the standard, I guess, is it, right, is it 12 string? It's doubled. It's not 12 string, right? No, it's not a 12 string. It's doubled, yeah. I would consider the short part the solo, and then kind of there's a chunk part, descending chord. I'd- just this four measures of this bridge to get to the instrumental. Most songs I write are a little different than that in terms of, you know, there's four chords and you might have two chords, another two. and But I kind of wanted something different in this one to break it out. And that's kind of where I was headed with that. It's an F sharp minor descending thing that goes back into the where the drums just do the two tom fills and then we go back into the third verse. Well, and you also use the organ here as a nice little distinguisher between the sections. Is that just purely a studio thing that you just added an extra layer there? I just liked it, and I said we should crank that. I wanted kind of that. That's another 60s type thing. I just wanted it louder in that section. It sounded really good. Oh, so it's going through the whole thing, and you just kind of mixed it in and out? That was a mixing thing, yeah. Okay, yeah. Going from the first verse into the chorus, the fact that you've got this one measure that's bah, that like the organ just pops out, like that's the thing. And then when you're getting back out of the solo, that it just suddenly goes away. So you've just got chun chun, you know, just the guitar by itself for those things, you know, that it introduced. No, we're back in straight guitar land. Yeah. <laughs> Do you record these things, like at least the rhythm part all the way through with drum and bass together? Or was this purely layered piece by piece? We did this one with guitar, drums, bass, where what we're looking for there is the drums, get the drum tracks, and then the bassist would overdub his parts. And then I'd go in and get the real guitar part. So we're just doing kind of scratch guitar tracks. Do you have it set up so that if they work, then you can leave them, like at least the bass? That's what I thought. That's what I wanted to do. I thought it would save time. But the engineer was like, well, usually we go for the drums first. So, yeah, I can press for that, but I I like working with a producer if I can and get him where he wants me to be comfortable, but I want him to be comfortable, too. So I don't ever want to force anything out of the realm where he's used to doing it that way. Yeah, I'll go for that. So this was a pretty different experience than some of your past albums that you were more it was you producing. It was different because it was the first time I'd worked with this guy. And it's maybe the most fun I've ever had doing one. He was so good. And he really got what I was going for. We talked a lot beforehand about how much I loved Big Star and Badfinger and just a lot of the band. He knew the references I was getting, at least with the people I hang out with and know. Everybody knows Badfinger. But if you get out of that realm of your friends and what your friends like, there are plenty of people who have probably never even heard of them. For this guy who knew exactly what I'm talking about, uh, was cool. So I always ask this, I've put claps on a a couple songs myself, and they never sound convincing. How many people, how many tracks do you do to get a convincing clap track? Like, can you just do one person or or three people at a time on one track? Or how do you make them a little bit off so it sounds thick? (laughs) Right, exactly. You can't just hit duplicate. We did three of us doing this three times. Okay. So I think there's nine in this case, yeah. You got the organ sweetener, you got the tambo sweetener. Any, Any other things that I'm missing here? Is there a fourth guitar hidden in here somewhere? Where we wanted to really make that chorus big, so on the we did several of those. So there's several more guitar layers on that of just the same thing. And I'm also such a Telecaster guy. Tellies are great, but you need some thickness. They're not always the best. So we used we got an Epiphone Casino that we used on that one too. Let's jump back a little bit to get another tune, which I'd like time to go, I think is sort of a quintessential pop tune, Dead Battery from Chorus vs. The Bridge, 2005, going back a bit to your third album. Any comments about that project, where you're at with that, as opposed to what we just heard? Chorus vs. The Bridge was the first record I did at Sun Studio. 
when I was a tour guide there, I worked there from 03 to 09. And I did three records in that room. So that's where Elvis and Johnny Cash and Jay Lee Lewis and Alan Wolf and so many 50s legends began their career. So to get to work there was an honor. But to get to record there at night was my favorite. And Dead Battery was the first song that band did for that album. That song is about when I moved from Richmond, Virginia to Memphis. And it was a lonely period. I moved from Richmond, Virginia, where I'm from, to Memphis in 2001. So I wrote Dead Battery a couple of years before we recorded it. But it's just a feeling of needing to recharge and being kind of low, but also being optimistic and that you're just going to fight through whatever comes your way and whatever gets thrown at you. So uh, my wife laughs about that song because the first line is, Heart's in a ditch and I live with a bitch and it can't go on. But it wasn't a bitch. So she's like, hey, people think I'm a bitch. It's about my friend's aunt that we lived with for a while. She wasn't a bitch either. She was fantastic. But she got kind of weird about us staying with her for a while. So we had to get out and get our own place. But I don't know if that's too much, but that was the impetus for Dead Battery. In that way, it ties in and makes sense for it. It's one of my favorite songs. It's always good to explain that kind of detail. Yeah. Something that rhymes, it sounds nice in the thing, but like anything that's sort of based in your personal life, but then you have to explain like, no, no, I'm kind of doing an imaginative extension or, you know, I'm not, don't take bitch literally. Or something. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's a big strong chorus in that song and the guitar solo in it i'm really proud of you know i'm really a rhythm player and a singer and i think that's what most songwriters are i think most songwriters are not shredder guys unless they're hendrix or something but i have to think about my solos i map them out and it's very deliberate i'm playing everything the same every time but i was proud of the solo on dead battery yeah, I was surprised seeing you live that you're even doing that. That's kind of the thing that, again, if I'm leading a band, I'm playing rhythm guitar in it. And often the thing that defines the sound of that particular band is whoever I get to play lead. That is, is it more of an alternative band? Is it more of a country-ish band? Well, it just depends who's doing the solos, who's doing the overlaying stuff. But you retain control of your sound, that the other guitarist will be there to thicken things and play pretty much what you tell them, or at least you're keeping the solos. The solos are part of the vocal sound. It's not a distinct voice coming in and adding uh, something completely from left field. On new stuff, the guitar players, I do like them to come up with their own ideas, but on these albums that have already been recorded and that are old, I like it to sound the way it sounds. And also, I never know album to album who's going to be in the band. I always say nobody cares as much as I do. They'll leave. The only one that's staying is me. I mean, that's why it's the new thing is David Brookings and the average lookings. I've been through more band members than, and I, you know, <laughs> that's not because of me. I think I completely sympathize. I went through exactly yeah. the same thing. It took me years before I insisted that. And it's been intermittent in terms of, do I put my name in the front of the band or not? It's mostly just, can you get away with it? Once you do an album or two with your name, then you can sell that to people who join the band. Okay, we're promoting this stuff that I've already done, so it's okay. <laughs> I'm not disrespecting you, but it does make, you know, exactly. if they join <laughs> your solo project and you're not Sting, you're not going to pay them a huge amount of money. It does seem even harder to make people feel a sense of belonging. That's a big thing a lot of my songwriter friends talk about like who do you think you are you put yourself in front of the band like you're tom petty and you're not and i know that but it is my stuff and i have worked really hard at this i've been working at this stuff for i mean the first album came out in 2000 so almost 20 years now and i'm working hard at it and the other thing about the name david brookings and the average lookings is a double People are like, what, you, you think you're better looking than them? I always say it shows like I'm no more average looking than they are. The name just has a cool ring to it. I like the name a lot. So we, that's what we go with for now. Even Tom Petty started in Mud Crutch, like had to establish a thing and then like, OK. And then he had an established, was it lead guitarist in that band, I believe? <laughs> So he's starting a new thing at le with at least another guy that's like, okay, we can use your name. I'll still co-write a lot of the songs, but that's just the way we're going to market things. And that makes right. sense. And it's probably some sort of industry encouragement. Like if it's just on your own, you just decide this is the product because you're just facing up to the fact right now that you people joining my band, you're probably going to quit in a year or two. <laughs> You know, I don't think I'm overbearing or, or anything, but I get, you know, maybe I am. I will say, hey, we got to let's get this solo to sound like it sounds on the record. But, you know, one thing about Petty and Mudcrutch is that first album came out when I was 21, but I'd already been in four or five bands and none of them had my name in front of them. All right. I sure did that. And then at a certain point when you're writing every song and I started my own publishing company in 05, I write all the songs. So let's say that I had done these seven albums and they all had a different band name and none of them had my name in front of it. How is anybody supposed to find you or know what you do or see a consistency? And I know you're not asking me to justify it, but that's kind of my thinking with it. Right. And there have been bands that when I was playing with them, they were called 
not my name. But then by the time the album comes out, everybody else has quit. So I just like changed the name <laughs> and now it's a solo album or now it's me and you know, something else. Yeah. <laughs> the name of the original band, because the amount of people that would remember the original band and, and buy it for that reason is minuscule compared to like the new people I'd be selling it to. So right, <laughs> it makes sense that to get that out right. Have you been invited to join a super group? No, I mean, I've done a couple tribute shows or I'll get up on stage and do some stuff with them. But I don't know if any of us are big enough to call whatever we would do a super group. <laughs> <laughs> Pulling the energy to try to, I mean, that's usually the other reason, even if you're writing all the songs, why you subsume yourself into the group entity, because other people are contributing business-wise or whatever, such that that's the group. But if you've just taken that responsibility right from the beginning and you're doing the booking and you're doing the day-to-day. I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to joining a group and writing half the songs or a third of the songs it's just it's never come up and this thing with these albums i put out it's very much little by little every time i do want a new group of people hears it and i'll always i can sell you know i'll sell a few hundred every time one comes out and all the power pop papers and blogs are always good to me and they'll review it but this thing is such an uphill climb that i don't feel like i have a lot of time to devote to doing what i would definitely call a side project I mean, that would be a side project for me because I'm working hard on this, on my stuff, in addition to the day job and having two kids and stuff. So the time I do have for it now at 38 versus 23 is really going into this solo thing still. Yeah. So what we're talking about is all stuff that is covered indirectly, at least in our third song, Obsessed. Before we jump to that, let me ask you at least about one little moment in Dead Battery, which is the intro. So I noticed as I was just trying to count it out, again, first, it's two guitars, right? It's not a fat guitar or something. Like when you even do this live, are you using two guitars that kind of one slides up while the others? I think on the record, that's probably a couple different guitars. But when we do it live, I just do that octave thing solo. Okay. Yeah. Then when the snare hits, it actually comes about an eighth note later than I would have expected. Like if I'm trying to just count it out from the beginning, then the vocals are in, I'm I'm just off. I know theory to a point, but you're right. Every drummer I've ever played with, there's a little bit of a moment where they're like, where do I come in there? To me, it's definitely not wrong, but I know what you mean. It's a tricky thing for them to count. But the way I write is kind of all based on feel and it's right to me, but it is a strange way for them to come in. You're right. It just they do the and then they're in. Is the intro instead of actually going ba da 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 ba? Is it the one happens right after or before the beat, so that you're going So that's that's already in your head. I think that's where it's coming because you have the one that it's actually the first note you play is the and of the four <laughs> is the pickup to the one, but the listener's never going to hear it that way because the first thing they're hearing is you playing. It of course sounds right to you, and if you actually are even looking at the drummer and counting off while you're doing that then, okay, I come in on the and of four kind of as you would expect and as they do on every single other one, but it's just the fact that it just sounds a little late and throws people off, which I like. I think it's a great way to start out here. I think it's also might have to do with the intro is very much a, you know, it's an octaved lead part. And then when the drums come in, it's all full chord. So 
I don't know, maybe that has something to do with it feel-wise. And then just the overall feel in the chorus. I mean, I know you get compared a lot to the Beatles, but this minor key thing, I guess that's more the Badfinger Big Star bit coming in that you don't actually hear, even though Beatles has all the jangle, there's not that mournful chorus here. You don't get any equivalent of that. I can't think of any Beatles song exactly. The first chord of the chorus is an F, but it's got a D on it. So that lends it to sounding a little different than a normal F. And then it goes to an A minor. So that chorus is going F, a minor but the mournful thing you're saying it it does sound mournful or does yes does anybody hear the word i said that you're just you know a minor key there and the going through the ah like that it never just until until we're getting back into the verse like which is a very kind of expected jangle pop thing in the verse but then the chorus is sort of unexpectedly it's not a I can't live if living is without you. It's not that, but it's a nice measured, you know, with the harmonies there. Something that's not quite as strung out as a big star or, or maybe Badfinger does strike that balance. That Chorus of this song, it's the words. I think those are the best songs. Uh, that's another reason I'm really proud of this one. That feeling, he, I say he, it's me, but in every song, there's a character. And a character in this song, he's really determined. He's really hanging on, but he's bummed out, too. So when it says, uh, just the way the ahs go, that F into that A minor and the harmony yeah. there, they really match what the song is about feeling-wise. And so my my favorite songs, whether they're mine or somebody else's, are ones where the lyrics really fit the music. And I think they do in the song. Yeah. I think we can move to Obsessed now. From the album right after that, the title song from Obsessed 2007. Any words before we play the song? Just that I would say Obsessed was the first of three albums in a row that I intentionally decided to go full-on autobiographical there's no alliteration or trying to i call it the u2 thing where you write a song that can fit thousands of people's mindsets and keep it vague where anybody can relate that song to them obsessed is incredibly personal everything in it from the last song which is about my first daughter being born to obsessed which is there's no mistaking anything like that first lennon solo album where he said it was going to be just no bullshit i'm writing about me this is it also by that point obsessed was my fourth album and so you get past that thing when you're 23 and 24 and still have this hope of hitting it big time like everybody has well then when you get into closer to 30 maybe it's still going to happen but not in that way it's not going to happen in that way so i decided i'm going to write me this is what i'm about this is where i'm at right now and Obsessed is just 100% laid out, and it wasn't for anybody but me. Coming back from a New York trip I just made up my mind To get a guitar Get a guitar Lessons for a year And they tell you what you want to hear So I quit to teach myself Now I'm coming along Coming along And I'm starting to write songs It's gonna be hard When you're playing Strong, or you're never gonna make it big. 
things on this album so you've got the song tough crowd on there as well which is another kind of just directly talking about which that one intentionally you know is jokey but even this one when i heard it first there was something funny about it even though like it's a totally straight song but just the fact that you're so literally laying out like that you don't see in a song exactly what you're talking about i mean there are plenty of autobiographical songs but they're not literally describing in broad strokes the scope of your career or something like that it could be your bio or something well, like the first line, I think, is coming back from a New York trip. I went to New York for the first time when I was eight or nine, and my aunt gave me a guitar. Not the same aunt as in Dead Battery. <laughs> and I kind of knew what I wanted to do. And then it talks about just the whole spectrum of what you do. And I'm, I mentioned in my other friends in that, miles away from the bars where the others play, because I was in Memphis by that point. My friends were all still in Richmond, Virginia. 
And then my mom really did used to ask me, why do you want to be famous? Why do you want to do music? What is it in you? And then the last line in the song about it, it couldn't be wrong or else why does it feel so strong? I thought it was cool. The fact that the harmonies there are not as polished <laughs> as, say, in Dead Battery. This sounds a little more homemade or something, that, that you're really straining for the strong there in your high harmony, that there's something that I like about that, the flaw. There is a strain there, and we liked it, and... If I were doing that now, I'd run it <laughs> I'd run it through auto-tune. Nobody talks about it, but <laughs> everybody does it. It's like Fight Club. But then, I don't know, I'm really close to the note there, and it adds to that thing of being obsessed, of, of reaching for it. So we left it in there. It's not an acoustic song. I would sort of expect it to be an acoustic song, but you've got this acoustic and electric on two sides of the, the stereo spectrum playing pretty much the same thing, right? Is it just really the same part? Yeah, it's doubled. It's kind of an acoustic song. Everything I write basically just about is on acoustic. So in a way, they kind of all are. That song has a cool, it does like an F sus to F back and forth, but not a normal F sus because there's an open D there. So I liked that. That's what I built that off of. And then the descending B flat down to G minor. Well, yeah, just to justify it being an arpeggiated riff as opposed to just mm -hmm. strumming through it or something like that, you can put these passing tones that you could still play it straight and it would just sound like a nice thick chord, but it sounds like a melody, a rapid melody, if you actually just put in something slightly unexpected in that kind of riff there. It makes it distinctive. I guess, again, you've got the same basic strategies in terms of that we've seen in the other songs in terms of when you put the background vocals in. Although with this one, it's just once they come in, they're pretty much there. You know, maybe they go away for the third line of a chorus just so you can kind of emphasize more and then they come back in for the sweetness. Is that just purely kind of instinctual? How do you determine, again, what makes you not put a third or a fourth harmony <laughs> You know, in some of these places, just to like, I want it to be extra big here. I want to ELO it out. <laughs> I don't know. It's all, this whole thing is instincts. <laughs> I don't really know what I'm doing. <laughs> I, I definitely probably didn't then. Well, I don't know. I'd been doing it a while then too. It just felt right to me. I just would do what kind of felt right. And the way it worked at Sun, yeah, I was working with an engineer. Two of my friends were engineering it, but there wasn't really a producer per se to say, do it this way. It was kind of me saying, let's do this. And they might say, no, that's not a good idea. Or if they didn't say it's not a good idea, I figured it must have been an okay idea and we would just go with it. Well, once you get into it by the second verse or so, when you've got the drums entering that's a pretty distinctive drum part, just that you have this kind of offbeat thing. Yeah. But then just in this one line later, it goes like, now we're going to go straight. So you're syncopating the vocal, but it's totally straight. And then you're back to the syncopated for the third line, just within a verse, I guess. Right. That record was done with just me and my brother-in-law. Basically, I played all the guitars and he played drums and bass. And okay. he's such a great musician. His name's Paul Taylor. And he played the solo on one of the songs on the new record, too. But it was great because he's such a, I call him a Jedi musician because he can play everything. He would play the drums and then he'd match the bass right up to it. And he's such a good musician that he can do that. So I remember just thinking, that is cool. Did he play that hyperactive piano that comes in that really fills up some of the space in there? Oh, uh, no, my friend Craig Schuster played piano. On okay. It. So, yeah, we did have a couple cameo appearances on that album, but it, basically Paul and I did that record and I really liked the drums on that song. I remember thinking that, dude, oh, that's cool. They're doing like this offbeat thing. 
and they go straight in the chorus, which helps to build the passion of <laughs> what the narrator in that song. Yeah, especially jumped out the piano. It's the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, and then you have this. I'm trying to remember the name of the. He plays the Here Comes the He plays he he plays the Here Comes the Sun lick. Who's the particular hyperactive sounding piano player that's just on the mid period Stone stuff? Nicky Hopkins. Nicky Hopkins. Yes, it's, it totally sounds like a Nicky Hopkins riff right there coming out of the, the Stones part. Well, he also specifically plays the Here Comes the Sun riff right uh, after I say Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Yeah, any other comments on toward the end? Oz there are that's almost the solo in that song there's no guitar solo in that song but that's the peak of that song's the emotional I don't know there's something cool about that when the Oz are harmonizing and they're coming descending down on that B flat yeah you go into the solo and it's almost like the drums are running the solo that it starts off with a yeah. you know, very prominent offbeat ride cymbal and then you're back to that syncopated riff and your Oz that are finally just settled back into the initial riff yeah, that song is different than a lot of the others, too, because it was, yeah, it has verse, chorus stuff, I guess, but that song's very linear to me. It just takes you straight through uh, lyrically, I guess, just the hard to describe. I like this interview because you really, and this is, it's a good way that you interview where you go really in depth on how you're getting to the songs and talk about this, but I think a lot of songwriters don't think of that stuff. So it's fun to talk about because it makes you think about what you were trying to say or do. And the truth is, a lot of the times I don't know what I'm, I know what I'm trying to do, but I, it's hard to describe it because I'm just, I know you know what I'm talking about. You're just doing it. Well, on this one, it's almost like the refrain is just that two chord thing that goes back and forth. So they're like, that's the verse. <laughs> When you actually go into the ba da 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 da, you know, the descending, that's still in the middle of the verse, but that's kind of like the B section. It's a different structure than, you know, having the whole verse and then having the whole chorus be this, the separate thing. I mean, you still have a distinct chorus, obviously. You know, sometimes when I'm writing songs myself, like, you know, I'll label some section the pre chorus or something. Like, it's not quite the chorus. Pre chorus. That's exactly what I would call that. It's still part of the verse. In fact, this whole thing, like, your chorus actually sounds like a pre-chorus in terms of it's not the thing that you settle into like the happy the tonic like the tonic is what you started with is the refrain so it's kind of backwards in the first place often it's the the intro is the chorus and then you have a verse where it goes somewhere else for a while and then it's back to basically the intro for the chorus itself and the fact that you just start right off that that's not the structure of this at all it makes it a little little less usual not unheard of one other thing I remember about this chorus is every once in a while you'll write a song and I've written hundreds of songs and a lot of them suck and I've never, you know, put them out or tried anything with them. But every once in a while you hear something that you'll think that sounds like another song. But the battle within me is, well, is anybody else going to hear it? And if I've made the rhythm different enough, are they going to think that it sounds like that? But on this song, when it says, it's going to be hard if I ever really make it there. I remember thinking this sounds like wind beneath my wings. <laughs> Did you ever know that you're... Oh, yeah. But no one's ever said that to me. And I'm the only one that I think maybe that's ever thought that. Or maybe it's only because, you know, only 200 people have ever heard this song. But that was funny to me about this one. A lot of the problem when you're trying to do stuff that really is, I don't want to say sugary, but that it pushes the pop button. That you're not trying to, like, be gritty and weird and go in some slightly different direction. You're not trying to, like, you know, of course you don't want to bore yourself and you want to make a new song distinctly every time. But, like, there are only so many things harmonically 
that just really push your buttons and make you feel. And so, of course, right. five years later, you're going to write another song that uses some similar technique, at least part of it, or you're going to be, as you were pointing out, pulling something. There's a reason that you'll never know you're my hero thing, that that was like, you know, a cultural that's effective as a melodic gesture. But I mean, I can't imagine. I'm sure that we're going to get to the point with, I guess, Shazam only like listens to a whole recording and tries to match to a whole recording, right? You can't just right. whistle me and my shadow into it and it'll say, oh, that's me and my shadow. Like, But I'm sure we're going to get to that point where you can sing your prospective new melody and they'll say, yeah, that's pretty much exactly like this song and this song and this song. And then you can decide whether that's bad enough. <laughs> right. Well, I'm certainly not trying to reinvent the wheel and no one's ever accused me of trying it. And there's only 12 notes or whatever. You know, so some stuff inevitably is going to sound like other stuff. Well, and the fact that you've been so meticulous, we should announce to the audience a thing that I will point through the blog post associated with this episode to your YouTube string of every single Beatles song yeah. performed in a row on successive days. I think that's a great publicity idea. Did it work? Well, I did 209 of them, and collectively, there's 200,000 views. So We'll try to push that a little harder. It works slowly but surely, and just like in everything else I do, I'm not quitting on that either. I repost those things, and some songs have, She Said, She Said has almost 20,000 views. So it's very interesting how some songs have a ton of views, and some have 300 views. And just like with the songs that I write, some of those suck, but I did it every day. (laughs) One day I was really sick, I remember, and I think it's what you're doing from Beatles for Sale, which isn't one of their really well-known ones anyway. But I remember I had like 103 fever or 102. I was laying on the bed sideways, and but I still did it. So, so much of what my whole thing is, is, is persistence and not quitting and being the last guy. You know, a lot of my friends have quit at this stuff. And they're like, how are you still doing it? You've got two kids now and, you know, you work at iTunes. How are you still doing this stuff? But I just think you make time for what you love and you keep at it. And uh, I know that's really far off from where you started, but the Beatles thing was like that too. And it was also like, you started this thing. And by the way, there's some severe pot brownies out here in California. When that started, if you watch the Love Me Do one, just eating a brownie. And I literally got the idea right there. I'm going to record every Beatles song every day until they're done. And then they started getting hits and views. So I just kept at it. And my wife was really excited when we were finished because it was, <laughs> it was enough. It was time to be done with it time to go. Well, let's get ourselves into the last song that we'll just introduce and say goodbye. If I don't make it back, I know that on Spotify, if people just look up David Brookings, they're not going to find the new album that they have to look up David Brookings and the average lookings, but all the other things are under David Brookings. And this is the song that has the most streams, I guess, among your solo catalog. In other words, pre this last album. Isn't that a bummer that they don't link up? I've tried to get them to link up. You just have to register with them as David Brookings is the artist and David Brookings and the average looking is the, is the album name or something like that. I don't know. Same thing with iTunes. They don't link up, but on Apple, you can sort of see one from the other. Sure. If people search by your name, at least they'll both come up as artists. Right. So that's been a way out of you know, Neil Young could have Neil Young and the, you know, several different bands, but at least they'll probably figure them all out. And Elvis Costello, I mean, you know, he's got like 10 different bands. Yeah, we'll change one band member. We got to change the name of the band. <laughs> yeah. Okay, the bass player is not that important that you should change the name of the band. 
when the bass player quits. Man, if I did that, it'd, every, it'd be David Brookings and the whatever lookings, independent lookings. You could just do it on a, a different backing band name every day, just, just every gig. <laughs> Is there anything else I need to say? Sure, tell the Steve Jobs story. I gave a tour in 2009. I'd been at Sun for six and a half years, and I gave Steve Jobs a tour. He was in Memphis for a liver transplant. I did not know it was Steve Jobs. They brought him in under an alias, and I wasn't a tech guy. I am now, but I wasn't then. I gave him the tour. I gave him Obsessed, which had just come out. And I told him my favorite stuff was Beatles and Bob Dylan, not realizing that those were his two favorite bands of all time. So I wonder if that had anything to do with it. But a few weeks later, I got an email and it just said iTunes. It looked like spam. I almost deleted it. But it was real. And it was he had this other guy that works for him ask if I wanted to work there. So they moved my wife and daughter and I out in October of 09. But it completely changed our lives. And it's been awesome. And I've been out here since 09. So I work hard for them during the day and stay really passionate and strong on this music thing and writing songs and playing shows at night. The day job thing, of course, that's another kind of uh, albatross. Like I finally got yeah. so that I'm working from home as a consultant and with really flexible hours, but I did work in an office for a bunch of years. Me calling it a day job, I think a lot of people would call it a career. That's my day job and it by God pays the bills. I'd be lost without it, but I'm a musician and that's what I consider myself even though the musician part pays a fraction of what the day job part pays. And I'm lucky to work there. It's a fantastic company. I just, I consider my job to be writing songs. And I think that's what I'm, I'm here for. And I'm really, maybe I've stayed at it too long, but it's little by little, every record, it pays off a little more. And I just, I've always felt like this is what I'm supposed to do. And I'm not giving up at it. And that's what something like Obsessed or a lot of the songs on the new one are. I think people eventually hopefully come around to that and see like this guy's not going away he just keeps coming he just keeps fucking writing songs and somebody has to take notice of that at some point i hope well i hope so and uh it's almost nice the way that the music industry has collapsed that i was in college in 93 and we were sending out demos to record companies and it was kind of like unless you can make that jump and have somebody buy you then like you're not in the industry and so that never happened. Then I moved to Austin and tried again professionally, but that doesn't happen to anybody now. Like, right. <laughs> so it's just run it as your own business. You just have to know right from the start that it is your responsibility and you're yeah. going to do all the booking and nobody is going to save you and yeah. suddenly get you distribution or whatever. Like you have distribution already. It's very easy, but yeah. <laughs> everything else is up to you. And there's no roadmap. You just take the machete and hack through the forest right in front of you and see where you get to. So say a little, a few words about if I don't make it back, where did this song come from? What should people expect here? It's the typical, the music is happy, but the lyrics are dark and strange. The idea to write a song about advising your family on what to do if you don't come back from somewhere. I don't know any, any other songs like that. So it goes back to me trying to write something original and, and you're right in this pop rock music, the formulas are so, that it's kind of all been done before. So all you can do is switch it up musically a little bit, but lyrically is where you can make an impact and be different. And so this song, to me, it sounds like Weezer a little bit. And then, but you've got these lyrics about what do you do if something happens to me? And and then the third verse is silly about the Mac. I'm suddenly attacked. Somebody tries to steal my Mac. A little nod to where I work there. 
but also it can be a double meaning with the word Mac. I like the chorus of the song too. It really, the build up, it's a good song, I think. And it's, I'm definitely glad we put that one first on the maze, the record that was, we did that album in San Francisco in 2013. Yeah, that's the first. When I moved from Memphis to California in 09, you know, it takes you a minute to get settled and back on your feet and round up some money to make another album. So that was definitely a standout song on that record, I felt like. So we put it first on that one. Well, thanks so much for your time. Been a lot of fun. Thanks, Mark.
thanks to David Brookings, an inspirational story of perseverance and awesomeness. So I got to say, I had not heard any of David's music before researching this interview, and I'm sure it has a lot to do with my influences being many of the same ones that David had named, but I find myself listening to Dead Battery and If I Don't Make It Back and some of the other songs just for pleasure. I should be preparing for a new interview, but I've added these things really to my lexicon. So remember, you can find out more at davidbrookings.net. And if you look to the post corresponding to this episode at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, I will link to some of his Beatles covers from that long, crazy project. And there's actually a Business Insider article with a little more about that project and how that may have been, according to the speculations that the writer done for Steve Jobs' benefit. So if you enjoyed this interview, I hope that you will, number one, go subscribe to the podcast. Number two, give us a little love. Patreon.com slash Nakedly Examined Music. Number three, go like us, follow us on Facebook, where it's very easy to share particular episodes that you found particularly valuable with your friends. Also, if you do use iTunes or Stitcher or some other platform that supports podcast reviews, I would very much appreciate a nice rating or review of the podcast. Or don't do any of those things and just spend your time making music. That's fine with me as well. Until next time, let your creative juices flow. This is Mark Lindemeyer signing off. Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at ritual.com podcast.